invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and uh, we're going to get into some uh, wonderful, rich, a bit intricate theology, uh, but it's beautiful gospel theology. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to use it this morning and uh, keep it open as we take our time to track Paul's uh, thought as he explains the wonder of uh, federal headship and what that means and why that matters. Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter, but we'll be focusing on verses 12 through 14. Let's give our attention to God's Word this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died... Through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Well, Father, now we pray that the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor would rest upon us as we open your word. And we thank you that you speak to us today as truly and, and clearly as if you were a, a man in this room speaking. Lord God, you, you address us in your word and, and you show us the glory of Jesus. So, Lord, help us to see him and love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I uh, came to this section, I was uh, thinking originally about just doing 12 through 21 as one sermon. It's a sermon that would hold together. It's got um, nice three points, uh, three paragraphs here. It's it's laid out well, um, and, and yet as I dug into it, I just realized there's so much good stuff here that it would, just, it would be an injustice, in a sense, to the text uh, to just take the 35,000-foot view. Um, so we're going to slow down here and uh, take it a bit at a time and, and do that for two reasons. Uh, one is the theology is a, is a bit intricate. Uh, some say that this is the most difficult of all of Paul's writings, uh, the most difficult passage to interpret. Um, I'm, I don't think that's true, but it is intricate enough that we want to slow down. If you're, if you're boating and the waves get really big uh, and you're in a little boat, you don't want to keep hammering the throttle. You want to 
you want to slow down. And we're going to slow down a little. And, and another reason is that these truths are somewhat foreign to us. As, as 21st century Americans, we are culturally geared to think about salvation almost completely in individual and experiential terms. So uh, when we think about being saved, we think about this category of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And while being saved certainly is about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not only that. It's much bigger than that. I think you could use a marriage maybe as an illustration. Um, Being married involves certainly an intimate personal relationship with your spouse, but that's not all that a marriage is. Um, There's a corporate reality to marriage, a a social reality in the sense that when you marry your wife, you join her extended family and she joins yours, like it or not, right? That's just the way it works. So it's not just you and your beloved, it's you and your beloved and all the rest of them. That's the reality of marriage. And marriage also involves a radical change in your social and legal status. Before you were married, you were an individual, a single. And there were certain uh, responsibilities and, and privileges that adhere to being single as an adult. There are things you can, you can do just because you want to do them. Places you can go. Well, when you become married, uh, your, your social status radically changes. You're, you're not an individual, a single anymore. You're a one flesh person, united to another one flesh person, and, and that changes everything about your social calendar. It's also, um, there's a legal status change, isn't there? With new opportunities and new obligations and responsibilities. So being married is much more than just your personal intimate relationship with your spouse. It's got all these other things attached to it, and that's the same as when it comes to being a Christian. Uh, There's a magnificent corporate reality to our salvation. We don't just get Jesus when we're saved. We get everyone and everything that also belongs to Jesus. There's a a corporate reality to to being a Christian. And, And just like marriage, Salvation involves a radical change of social and legal status. And Paul's going to point that out here in our text. We cease to exist in our former life in Adam. Just like in marriage, you move from single to this new reality. We were in Adam, and now we're in this new reality in Christ. And, and all, the, all the deadly consequences of our relationship with Adam are being replaced with all the eternal life realities of our relationship with Christ. And that's what Paul's going to take these next verses to slowly unpack, unfold, and expound, and it's beautiful. If you want the big picture, these verses talk about two men, Adam, Christ, two acts, disobedience, obedience, and two results, life, death. You're going to do all this, these verses in one sermon. That, those would be your three points. Um, that's the big picture. There's two heads, two representatives of two different bodies. Uh, all that are in Adam die. Everyone that is in Christ lives. And Paul is going to help us understand that 
by pointing out the reality of Adam then as a type of Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. You see that in verse 14, Adam is a pattern or a type of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let's just unfold that, unpack that thought for a moment. Um, One of the wonderful things about the Bible is how God has saturated Old Testament history with people and institutions that explicitly point ahead to Jesus Christ and find their fulfillment in Him. If, if you want to talk to someone about why you believe the Bible is true, this is a great thing to point to. How is it that you have so many things happening thousands of years before Christ that explicitly point to Him? Nick Batzig says this, there is perhaps nothing so faith-building in the Old Testament apart from the explicit messianic prophecies themselves, as God's structuring of history to give us people, places, and events to prefigure the coming Messiah. So if you think about Abraham offering up Isaac, his son, on an altar, about ready to slay him at God's command, and then God provides a ram, and that happens on the exact mountain on which Jesus will be crucified. You think about Joshua leading Israel into the promised land, Joshua, the Hebrew name, Jesus. Jonah in the whale, Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the greater Jonah. I was dead and I'm alive. David being persecuted by uh, his enemies, though he was the anointed king of Israel. Those are all types. All these things intentionally, intentionally placed by the providence and the command of God to help us understand the glory of Christ in his person and in his work. And there's so many more. You could point to the tabernacle. You could point to the Passover lamb the cities of refuge, the daily sacrifices, the priestly garments. The Old Testament is saturated with these types and symbols that point to the glory of Jesus. And the the joy of the New Testament authors was to go about unpacking that and explaining uh, Old Testament realities in light of New Testament truth. The book of Hebrews is uh, devoted nearly entirely just to that project. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. And and Paul now is doing that here in these verses, helping us to see that Adam and Christ uh, have this typological relationship. So he'll explain 12 through 14. Adam is the type. Then in verses 15 and 17, uh, Adam and Christ are contrasted. And so you'll see the repeating phrase, is not like, verse 15, is not like, verse 16. So, comparison, so contrast, and then comparison, 18 through 21, just as, so also, verses 18 and 19 and 21. All right, so we have Abraham and Christ in this typological relationship, Adam, excuse me, Adam pointing us to Christ by comparison and contrast. And Paul's going to be very careful and methodical as he, goes, as he does this because he wants, us to help, he wants to help us see the glory of Jesus as our federal representative head. And that's the main idea that we want to look at this morning, the principle of federal representative 
headship. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And you notice the representative connection. One man, all men. One man sinned, all men died. Adam is the representative head of the human race, the, the federal representative head. That, that's kind of big language, but we know what it means. We're, we're familiar with this. When you elect a, a, a senator to go to Washington, you're electing someone to, he's going to represent you. That's, that's, at least that's the idea. That's, that's what he's supposed to be doing. And the laws that he passes and things that he participates in, that, you're going to be under those laws because he's, he's speaking in your place. When um, a, a, a lawyer can, there can be a class action lawsuit. And one man or one firm is then asked to negotiate a settlement for all of those who are under their representation. That, that's a, a, what we're talking about here. There's God, we're going to see, deals with mankind in that representative way. He deals with us according to our federal head. So John Murray says, The apostle is now demonstrating that the divine method of justifying the ungodly is necessitated by the principle by which God governs the human race. God governs men and relates himself to men in terms of federal relationship. Let me just read that sentence again. God governs men and relates himself to men in terms of federal relationship, federal headship. So God deals with mankind not just or not even primarily on a one-to-one -one individual basis. That's what, that's what we see here. But he deals with us according to our relationship to a federal head, either Adam or Christ. So by birth, we are all children of Adam. And in Adam's sin, we are condemned. His guilt is imputed to us. And we receive death. That's verse 12. By faith, we're united to Christ. And by His righteousness, we are justified. His righteousness being imputed to us. And we receive life. Now again, there's a, just a ton of glory in that. But let's slow down and just unpack it. Salvation, you see, is not just a matter of receiving something from Jesus. If you, if you would ask someone, what has Jesus done for you? The common response might be, he forgave me my sins. And that's awesome. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, right? Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. A glorious benefit of the cross. But it's not the greatest one. The great glory and benefit of the gospel and of the cross is that we have been united to Jesus Christ. We're not just receiving something from Jesus. We are bound to him in this federal relationship so that we no longer belong to Adam and, uh, and, and are, receive the consequences of his disobedience. But I am bound to Jesus and I receive the consequences of his righteousness, his obedience. I'm not subject to Adam's penalty. I'm, I'm subject to Christ's reward. It's, 
It's so much more than just a personal relationship. You see, Jesus has become my federal head. So what belongs to him belongs to me, belongs to us. His relationship to to the law and to the Father, Christ, that becomes my relationship to the law and to the Father. Uh, His inheritance becomes our inheritance. His righteousness is our righteousness. By natural birth, we were in Adam and heirs to his death. By the miracle of rebirth, we are now in Christ and heirs of his life. And so Paul, in verse 12, and uh, begins this topic, and I just want to pull it apart a phrase at a time so, so we see it. This is so rich. Let's just take verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. That's not hard to understand. We know who the one man is. It's Adam, the first man. A historical figure, right? There's conversation taking place in the church. Was, was Adam really a, a historical figure? Yes, he absolutely was. Or Paul's entire argument here just falls to pieces. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks of Adam as an historical figure. And that settles it. So, Adam is called to be the head of the human race. Uh, that's why when Adam sins, God doesn't go to, when Eve sins, God goes to Adam. He doesn't go to Eve first, he goes to Adam, and, and, he, and he asks Adam, where are you? Because Adam's the head. So, sin enters the world through one man. Second, death through sin We understand that. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Right? He entered into a covenant with with Adam and and Eve, and and that was the stipulation. And when they sinned, death entered the world. And then Paul says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this is is a very important phrase, and, and where people can easily get tripped up. And Paul's going to spend the next several verses explaining what he means by this. So death spread to all men because all sinned. What does that mean? The most common explanation is that Paul means that everyone commits personal sin and therefore everyone dies. People die because of their own personal sin. They violate the law and so they suffer the consequences. Now, that is true, but it's not what Paul is saying here. It's not what Paul is saying here. When, what Paul means is that all men, death spread to all men because all sinned in the sin of the one man, Adam. That the reason people die is not ultimately or only their own personal sin, but in an ultimate sense, it's because of Adam's sin. And if you doubt that, Paul pounds that point home in every single verse in this section. Notice verse 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. If you have your Bible, just look with me. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation for everyone. 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. 18, one transgression led to condemnation for all men. 
19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I mean, he could not be more clear as to what he's trying to say. That means that our dilemma, our problem before God is not simply the things that we have done wrong, our personal acts of sin. Our problem is that we have a connection, a federal connection with Adam and his sin. And the reason then that death is universal is because Adam's sin is imputed to all of his offspring. That's why everyone dies. That's why all of Adam's offspring are under the condemnation of God, because Adam is the federal head. His name, Adam's name, means mankind. It's who he is. And so when God entered into that covenant with Adam where he promised life for obedience, eternal life for obedience, and judgment and death for disobedience, he did not make that covenant just with Adam and Eve. You'll notice he does not make that covenant with, he doesn't come to Cain and Abel and do the same thing, or, or to Seth or, 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 or Adam's children. He makes it with Adam and Eve, with Adam specifically, because Adam is the federal head. And so when Adam disobeyed that, that covenant, he brought death not only upon himself, but upon all of his descendants. That's what it, the significance of federal headship. And so death is universal because Adam's guilt has been imputed to the entire human race. So I was studying this, I was just thinking, <clears throat> everyone in heaven is going to be incredibly blessed, but the one guy in heaven I wouldn't want to be is Adam. Where, you know, I, I, I'm sure grace will cover it all and we'll, we'll welcome and love him, but, but when you, man, <clears throat> that's who he is, okay? And so in verse 13 and 14, Paul's going to prove that point. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. This is a little, little tricky, but we'll, we'll, we'll pull it apart. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So there was sin in the world before Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All right, let's just pull it apart. People uh, sinned. Well, people died, that's what Paul says, right? Um, excuse me. People sinned in the world before the law was given. People were sinning before, before Moses. But, Paul says, their sin was not taken into account. Now, what does that mean? It just means that if you ask the reason of Paul here as he's making this argument, why did these people die? It's not because they broke the commands of God. That's what he's saying. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Everyone died. Why? Because they were under Adam's federal headship, and his sin has been imputed to them. And to, and to, and to really make the point, he says, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What was trans Adam's transgression like? Adam's transgression was a, a violation of what he knew God forbade, right? of, of God's express commands. But I think when, when he's, Paul is talking about whose sinning was not a willful choice, I think he's talking about infants. Commentators, um, I think, largely agree on this. Why 
Why do infants die? Why do children even die in the womb? Before they've ever had a chance to break a specific command of God. It can't be because they did something wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. So why do they die? Well, because they are Adam's children and have inherited then the guilt and the death brought about by Adam's sin. That's what he's saying in verses 13 and 14. Now, some of you are going to think, well, wait a minute, that, that's not fair. Why should I bear the consequences of someone I've never even met? Why should I bear the consequences of Adam's sin? And the answer is because that's how God set it up. Any questions? That's how he set it up. But before uh, right, we just walk away, hold on to that concern, you see, because we're going to see in a moment that that very principle is to our great advantage. You see, the principle of federal headship that brought us into Adam's guilt and death is exactly the same principle that brings us into Christ's righteousness and life. It's exactly the same thing. And, and the reason then we can have just untold, limitless confidence in our salvation. You see, Paul is going to draw a parallel. He's going to show that just as we were condemned in Adam, so too we are now justified in Christ. That Christ has accomplished a reversal of the judgment we received in Adam. You see, if we think of our condemnation primarily in terms of our individual actions, we're going to be tempted to think of our salvation primarily in terms of our individual actions. Our believing and our obeying is the engine that makes it work. But Paul wants us to see that neither our condemnation nor our salvation are rooted primarily in what we do. But the deepest reason for our alienation from God and the deepest reason for our reconciliation with God is outside of us, found in the actions of our federal head. Now that's, that's a big thought, but let me draw out why it matters, some of the ramifications. One thing this does is it, it, it lays bare, it exposes the false assurance of moral people. People who live in the world and they, they are convinced they are basically good people. Sure they sin, sure they make mistakes, but absolutely confident that on the day of judgment they will be received, or on the day uh, when they go stand before the throne of God in heaven, they will be received because they're, they're a good man, they're a good woman. And so when you try to talk to them about Jesus, well, they're convinced that only wicked people need Jesus, and they don't experience themselves as wicked. So how do you penetrate that false assurance? How do you evangelize that person? Well, one way is you can, you can just show them that death reigns over everyone, and death is not just part of the circle of life. Death is judgment from God. It is judgment from God. And it reigns over the entire world and over them. You see, their problem, 
Their, their own mortality is telling them that they are united to Adam. That's what their mortality tells them. His guilt has been imputed to them. And no amount of moral living will ever be able to break the chain that holds them to Adam as their federal head and to Adam's guilt having been imputed to them. Moral living will never accomplish it. The reality of universal death is the irrefutable evidence of their bondage to the headship of Adam. And how are they going to escape that? And so you just ask the question, are you going to die? Yes? Well, then you need Jesus. Because that's what your death is telling you. You are bound to Adam. So it helps us evangelize. It should also make us eager to flee to Christ and understand what it means then to be saved, to be a Christian. You see, this this helps us think in biblical categories when it comes to our salvation. Uh, People think of their salvation as as having their sins forgiven. And again, praise God, it's true. But being saved is fundamentally about being united to Jesus and being found in Jesus. That's how Paul talks about it in Philippians 3.8. I consider all things rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That, that to be a Christian means that God has miraculously taken me out of the representative relationship I had with Adam and has brought me into a new representative relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus stands for me. And so when I stand before the judgment throne of God, Adam and the law will have nothing to say. Jesus stands for me. I'm with him. That's my identity. That's my destiny. That's my security. I am in Christ. And everything that belongs to Jesus, by the miracle of grace, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. None of it can be withheld. You see, friends, this shows us the glory of Jesus as the one Savior of Adam's fallen race. We're going to get into following weeks, verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The many died through the one man's trespass, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Jesus came as the second Adam, the better Adam, a vastly better federal head. John Henry Newman captured that in him when he says, Oh, the loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's our Lord Jesus. And in every way that Adam failed as the head of this creation, Jesus Christ has triumphed as the head of a new creation. And he alone now is able to rescue all those who are in bondage to Adam's fall and brings them to everlasting life. Paul expounds on this in 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, verse 21, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
Verse 45, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man was from heaven. Verse 49, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. That is God's gift to you in the gospel. That is what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. Have you borne the likeness of the earthly man? Oh, yes, you have. And yes, you still do in so many ways, and so do I. And yet, that is not our true identity, and that is certainly not our destiny. We shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven because we belong to him. That's our hope, it's our confidence. Jesus is our federal head. And that, of course, is the question of your life, isn't it? Who represents you? Who represents you before the throne of God in heaven? Who stands to say, I'm res- this person belongs to me? Is it Adam? Or is it Christ? And there's a way to be absolutely certain, and that way is by confessing your sin and calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus promises that anyone who belongs to Adam, anyone who confesses their sin and calls on his name, will be given, given eternal life. Jesus will receive you. You will belong to him, and he promises, stand, promises to stand for you. I don't know where your heart is. Maybe you're not even sure where it is. But I know that you can be sure. And friends, if, if, if you've never made that decision, I, I, I beg you to do it today. And if you have, would you just, I just invite you to go deeper into this and, and spend the week reflecting what it means that Jesus is your head and your federal head and you belong to Christ and you are, you are in Christ, you're united to Christ and everything that is Jesus is then yours. And as you once were in Adam, You are now in Jesus, and you will bear his likeness forever, all by the grace, the abounding grace of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for Jesus. I'm just overwhelmed that he would be willing to set aside the glory of heaven and come and be made man in, in our flesh and likeness so that we could be made in his likeness. Jesus thank you for being a a better second Adam and rescuing us from our bondage to death under the first Adam. And Jesus, thank you that that we gain this, this exalted status not by anything that we do, anything that we intend or promise, but but simply by confessing our need and, and holding out the hand of faith. And you have compassion on us and you forgive us and you receive us and you stand for us. Jesus, some of us wrestle with assurance. I pray that this this truth would wipe away all doubt and fear. Some of us lack boldness as we stand in in the midst of an accusing, condemning world. And I, I just pray that this truth give us a rock to stand on. We are Christ. We belong to him. We're part of his corporate body. We are victors and conquerors. Help us to live like it. And Jesus, if there are any here today who 
are still in their sin. I pray that you would, Lord, just open their heart to see all the glory that they're missing, all the death that belongs to them in Adam and all the life that could be theirs in Christ. And let they would bow the knee today. Jesus Christ, be praised as your Holy Spirit applies these truths to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by saying, come behold the wondrous mystery. Uh, the, the lyrics say, see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Let's rejoice and celebrate our Lord Jesus.
the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.